eerily haunting true stories about remote abandoned locations rich in history. Come with us in our travels from state to state, if you dare. <laughs> The last time anybody sees us alive. I don't know where she has authority to come to Hello? Gina, there is a beehive over there. Do you see that in the hole? Buckle up, buttercup. Welcome to 50 States of Madness. Welcome to 50 States of Madness. Hi, welcome. I'm Shannon. I'm Gina. And um, another episode, another week. Another week has gone by. They go by so fast. They do. I'm surprised how many episodes we've done. And we've we're consistent we every week. Yeah, we we've put episodes up every week. I well, don't I've never looked at how in many October we're... it's going to be fifty two weeks, right? Because yeah. we started in October. So at the end of September. So what is that? Fifty two minus like what, three months, twelve weeks. Oh, yeah. So like 40 about forty episodes. episodes. That's insane. Yeah. Like, I've been almost one year anniversary. I so know. What are we going to do? do? I don't know. Maybe people can give us suggestions and give yeah, us some ideas. What should we do? Cause we like, when we did our first episode, we went out to dinner. We got a cake. Like yeah. we celebrated, but one year, I didn't think we'd make it to one year. I, I know like consistently like every, every single, single week, week. Mm-hmm. because when we first started thinking about it and kind of we were like is it once a month are we going to do every two weeks? two weeks yeah how are we going to do this and then we're like okay let's just do it every week because and then whatever we picked like we had to stick to it yeah you know and then we thought like oh and then we'll at first we thought like oh seasons we'll take a break and then come back but no we just been yeah. shooting them out and yeah. non-stop i mean but there's so many stories out there i was gonna cover. say there's definitely especially like True crime wise, there's yeah. a lot out it's there. It's so sad. It's like so unlimited the amount of stories. I mean, mm-hmm. even today you sent me a story about a guy who is killing uh, workers. Yeah. Like you know, I guess we can say sex worker. I'm mean, yeah. gonna say everything else. So, sex workers in TJ, TJ. Mm-hmm. a man and in Downey, right here, right here in Downey, where mm-hmm. I work. Yep, has been arrested, and they likened him to Ted Bundy. Yeah, I think the article said. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So a friend I, of mine sent me the article and. I didn't have a chance at work to open it, but I just shot it over to you real quick. And I was like, what the hell? Another one we got to look into. Yeah, I mean, there's so, I mean, I have a list going on my phone. Yeah. But the more that we, um, the more people are commenting, people continue to request them too. Um, I did want to say one thing because we have been saying the last few episodes, um, you know, if you have any, you know, cases that you want us to talk about or whatever. Um, but I did want to say uncle creepy. I get, I, I know that, um, you sent me that one, um, from Fresno and we have not done it yet because I, I started to write it up and I think it's going to have to be an episode. I'm going to have to record by myself. Okay. Cause I don't think you can do it. Is it, Oh, it's really bad. It's bad. It's crazy bad. I'll just sit and listen and nod my head. I don't know if you can even do that. It's it's, it's, it's really, really bad. bad. Yeah. It's yeah, very, very know. bad. Is it about kids? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I'd probably cry. Yeah. It's really bad. I mean, all but, these are like young adults and stuff. But when it comes to kids and like and then especially when it's even on teenagers, like sexual assaults and stuff, it just it breaks yeah. my heart. Yeah. So, yeah. So but and, and him and I message all the time. So um, 
but I keep forgetting to tell you creepy. So now I'm, I'm telling you, (laughs) um, I know that you requested that one and it's very, very interesting and very in depth and I will get to it. Maybe by the time we get to it, I'll be a little bit, it's sad to say, but a little bit more numb to it. So maybe, yeah, maybe if we do it, yeah, it's it's a rough one. Yeah. Cause I know the more I keep watching and reading and yeah, you do. You, you, you do become, get a you mm-hmm. get a little bit more numb to it. Like right now, today we're gonna do the Oklahoma Girl Scout murders with the little girls, and I did watch the series that they had about it yeah. and stuff like. And that. I think this one but, was also requested, maybe by oh, the same it? girl oh. that that did the um, Springfield, Springfield three. three. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I think she did. She, I know she said the Springfield three and the West Memphis three, and that one I still am trying to work out some kinks with but yeah. um somebody did request this so so that's why we did it so yeah so today we're going to be talking about the oklahoma girl scout murders i was born in oklahoma yeah but in oklahoma city so that's south of tulsa because I, I was going to say how close a little bit yeah okay it's a few hours south okay. of tulsa so yeah i, okay. it wasn't I didn't close. know yeah i didn't know but, how close you were no to no, this. no no it, it's like probably it, like even further than San Diego and LA like oh yeah I think I don't know San Jose San maybe I don't know I don't even know where it's a a distance yeah it's a little bit of a distance it's not real nearby it's like um Tulsa's in northern Oklahoma and Oklahoma City's kind of like in the south central oh okay like it's center but it's kind of a little south of it okay closer to Texas so yeah yeah so so this is um I'm sure it's it's especially since the show the show um, on Hulu is called Keeper of the Ashes, and um, I watched it when it first came out. I think last year, yeah. the year before, maybe 2022, it came out, and I didn't get a chance to watch it again because once I started researching this case, I was like, so much more when you there's read about it. So much to it that I didn't even go back and rewatch that because I was so involved in everything else that I was reading but um I actually read one of the books it's called the Camp Scott hold on I wrote it down the Camp Scott murders there's a bunch of books um there's one called someone cry for the children shattered justice and the Camp Scott murders um so I wrote the I read the Camp Scott murders and also a million other things that were out there. But today we're going to talk about the case and probably the person who everybody has heard or is familiar with who was arrested, who they for think it. was responsible for this murder. And I'm sure, and I would love to hear everybody's opinion on who they think did it because there were so many suspects that were eventually at some point ruled out. Um, But this is a case where now we're getting to the point where it happened in 1977, but a lot of the people involved, like that were involved, um, the authorities and stuff like that, they're all passing away. It does. It comes to a point where um, the original people who invested, they're not around to Mm -mm. interview, to follow nothing. Yeah. So it's unfortunately, it's probably never going to be solved you know um but what i do want to say is if you're going to 
um, look into or research this. I wouldn't recommend Keeper of the Ashes, the Hulu yeah. show. And I'm only going to say that because I didn't like, and I told you this when we talked about it. Um, I don't like that Kristen Chenoweth is the narrator of it. Okay. I like her. I mean, I, I don't her. like her or not like her. I have no opinion on her because I, I don't really her. know much about her. I love her. Play However. And, yeah. Musicals and um, she, as far as I'm concerned, has nothing to do with this case. No, no. She maybe. Like me. She, I was born in Oklahoma. <laughs> yeah. Like she was supposed to go to camp, this camp, but she didn't and she got sick. And yeah, she ended up not so she going. didn't go. Um, she went to school with one of the girls that was murdered, but she didn't know her. Yeah, I think it's like one of those things where, like, oh, I was supposed to get on that flight, but the flight crashed. Like, and that's you fine. Part of it, yeah, but, and th- and that's fine. However, the show took it a step further and tried to promote her music and how she's dealing with all of this stuff. Well, I'm sorry, Miss Chenoweth, this isn't about you. Like this is about these three girls that were murdered. And like, I just felt like it was done in poor taste to make it look like it was all about her and how she's going to come back to, you know, this little town and she's going to go back to camp Scott and she's going to deal with all of the demons that this has brought her and how she, you know, everything she's been affected with. Well, what about the fucking families? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's my little rant, but I, um, it's kind of a long one. <laughs> it's kind of long. Today's episode. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to start out by just kind of introducing the three, the three little girls. Three babies. So there was Lori Lee Farmer and she was eight years old. Michelle Heather Gousset, who was nine years old and Doris Denise Milner, who was 10 and Um, she went by Denise. She went by her middle name. So Lori Lee Farmer was born on June 18th, 1968 and was the oldest of five children. She was described by her mom, Sherry and her dad, Bo as smart, strong and extremely bright, loving and an exceptional child. Sherry said that Lori always loved when a new sibling arrived. She was an amazing older sister and she always took care of everyone. Lori had never been to Girl Scout camp. But just before her ninth birthday, she asked her mom if she could attend. She couldn't decide if she wanted to go to Girl Scout camp or a camp sponsored by the Tulsa area YMCA. So her mother decided for her. She also decided which week she would be attending, a decision that would that she would have to live with for the rest of her life. That would be tough. Yeah. She, um, I think, holds a lot of guilt for making that decision you can't control what other people are gonna i know it's just i mean you could yeah but i get it like yeah as a parent i get that fear every time i book it's weird like even now when i book my kids a flight like anytime they call me and say like book me a flight to come see you or book me a flight for this or plan a trip for me on this every time i book that flight yeah i I get that panic like yeah hope this is the flight yeah like i'm gonna be responsible if something happens like which you know you're not yeah (laughs) so uh so the next girl was michelle heather gusey michelle was born on july 22nd 1967 and was described by her parents richard and georgianne as an active and athletic girl michelle had attended camp scott the prior year 
and was looking forward to spending time with her Girl Scout friends again. Her mother remembered that Michelle came downstairs and sat on her lap. She told her that she was going to miss her and to please remember to take care of her plants while she was gone. African violets were her specialty and she wanted to make sure they got watered. So I think she was just worried about that her, you know, she just wanted to make sure her plants were taken care of yeah, while she was gone. That's so cute. Yeah. I can't keep anything alive. Any I can't or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Me either. Uh, then we have Doris Denise Milner. Uh, she was born on February 5th, 1967 and was a straight A student and she had been accepted into the prestigious Carver Middle School, a Tulsa magnet school created for exceptional children. Her mom, Betty, said that she was very excited about starting in the fall. Denise had never been to camp before, but sold enough Girl Scout cookies to be able to attend. She was so excited to go, but was also very anxious about leaving her mom and her younger, her younger sister, Kathleen, who I think went by Kathy. Originally, Denise's friends planned to attend camp, but at the last minute, they dropped out. Her mom convinced her to go and try it and that it would help her to become more independent. If she didn't like it, she could call home and her mom would just go pick her up. So they lived, I think, within a few hours. Um, yeah, it doesn't sound like it was very far from. No, and were. her mom just said, you know, I told her if she didn't like it, then, you know, she could. Um, and I think when she was dropped off at camp, one of the counselors spotted her um, that she was by herself. She didn't have any friends. And uh, she sat next to her and she told her, you know, if you have any any problems, just let me know. You know, she was reassuring the mom, I'll keep an eye on her. Um, but what I found to be interesting was when Denise was getting on the bus, her little sister, Kathy, asked her mom, what happens when people die? And her mom asked why. And her sister, Kathy, said, because tomorrow everyone is going to die. This was Denise's little little sister. That's in, and I think I remember reading or hearing or watching something about that. It's interesting because I feel like children know more than we think they know. Like mm-hmm. they yeah. sense things, they feel mm-hmm. things, they see things that we may not see yeah. here. Yeah. That just, I was, I was blown away at that. That's I thought, le- oh my God, like that would, you know, I don't know to hear a kid say that just randomly as you're dropping your kid off was Kathy do we know um she was younger than Denise so So I don't know maybe five or six yeah Yeah. a little bit she was wow younger so yeah um kind of (laughs) disturbing I wonder they and they never talked to her after about it like if she had a dream or I wonder if they ever Mm -mm. explored that I don't know I'm I haven't seen um I haven't seen any um Anything with the sister, yeah. any interviews or anything like that. She probably doesn't even remember making that comment. You know, when yeah, you're that because young. Because she was young. Yeah. But I'm sure that's a point in her life that really stands out too. So who knows yeah. why she, you know, I don't know. But that's yeah, crazy. it's, it's, it is, it's very scary. And I'll teach you to I listen. Know, to listen to, to, <laughs> to, listen to, the to your kids. Yeah, no, for sure. So um, a little bit about Camp Scott. It's located in the Cookson Hills, a few miles south of Locust Grove, Oklahoma. The 410-acre camp was named in honor of H.J. and Florence Scott, 
They were both Tulsa Boy and Girl Scout volunteers. They donated 24 acres in 1928 for the core of the camp to open. Through the years, the Oklahoma Girl Scout Council would use money raised by selling Girl Scout cookies to buy additional land. In the spring of 1956, Girl Scouts planted thousands of pine trees throughout the camp. Money was donated by the civic clubs throughout Oklahoma to build several several other smaller buildings on the land. From 1928 to June 13, 1977, more than 12,000 girls attended Camp Scott. The camp was arranged into 12 campsites. Each unit was named after Native American tribes. There was Osage, Chickasaw, Creek, Seminole, Choctaw, Comanche, Cherokee, Arapaho, Quapaw, and Kiowa. There were eight wooden platform tents at Kiowa, Arapaho, Quapaw, and Choctaw units, and four wooden platform tents at both the Seminole and Comanche units. Wooden cabins were um, at the Osage, Chickasaw, and Creek units. The two winterized cabins were the Cedar Lodge and the Red Barn. I have Cherokee and Choctaw. Do you really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's my, yeah. So. That's interesting. The, the way that these tents were, like when I just heard tent, I just think like, oh, it's a tent that's just, you know. Like that you go buy at Big Five. Or- I picture like permanent because since it's a camp. So I picture more like a permanent tent, like, you know, kind of like a teepee type tent. Yeah. So like- it's it's like um, a wooden floor, like wooden slats on the floor. And then you step into it and they had these like um, vinyl kind of things that folded down. Was it almost like to like um, cover the sides and you could roll oh, them up? Like- oh, it wasn't like Indiana Jones type, like, you know, when you picture like the white, like when they're out excavating, you know, those white tents. No. Like, okay. No, like a, like, like a, a um, rough material, like that really no, heavy I, canvas. Yeah. I think that's what like it was. Heavy canvas yeah. type. Okay. That's yeah. what I'm picturing. Yeah. No, okay. I think that's exactly what it was. So, um, it wasn't like, uh, it was nothing really permanent except the bottom part, like okay. the floor, you know? So they would pitch those the tough yeah, the, canvas up and there was during the time that they're yeah camping. and they would just put the beds in there okay so on june 12 1977 about 140 girls of all ages arrived at camp scott for summer camp that was supposed to last two weeks that night they had heavy rain which caused them to cancel the evening's activities the girls were told to go back to their tents and change their clothes and get ready for bed The girls spent the rest of the night writing letters to their families back home. Denise had asked a counselor if she could call home to talk to her mom. And the counselor told her to try and stick it out and she could call her in the morning. And I'm looking at this two weeks for eight to 10 year olds. That's a long time. There were younger kids there, too. Yeah. For two weeks for me. Because they had um, the brownies there, too. Yeah, I I don't know. Two weeks is a long time. That's a very long time. I was in. I went to sixth grade camp, mm-hmm. and it was a week long, and that was a long time. Yeah, it was like a Monday through Friday, mm-hmm. um, not even a full week, and that was a long time. So for two weeks, mm-hmm. that's an extremely long. It time is for a long a little time. Kid. Yeah, and then especially for you know a kid that doesn't want to go. Yeah, <laughs> um, seems like an eternity. Yeah, and I and I feel like they 
the parents probably thought like once they get adapted, you know, they're going to be busy by the time they get done doing everything. They come home, they're tired, they sleep. And then, you know, but I think for, and for these three girls, they didn't know anybody. So they didn't go with their friends and that's kind of how they all got grouped together. Oh, okay. So, so Lori, Michelle and Denise were in the Kiowa unit um, and they were sleeping in tent number seven. The girls didn't know each other, but they seemed to bond quickly. Um, so you'll hear this tent referred to as tent number seven and tent number eight. The Kiowa unit campsite did not count the counselor's tent as tent number one. So there were seven Girl Scout tents and one counselor tent. But the police and investigators saw a total of eight tents and considered the victim's tent as tent eight. Oh, okay. So, so you'll hear. It's like the counselor's tent and then tent one, two, three. So the people who are attending. But when the police got there, to it, they eight, counted. But they said, oh, this is yeah. the eight tent. So they were. Was it the furthest out yes, tent? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It was the furthest one out. And so it was actually tent number seven that they were sleeping in. Okay. So uh, the counselors shared their own tent. And there were four girls to each tent, except in tent number seven, where there were only Lori, Denise and Michelle. The Kiowa unit was more isolated than the other units. It was located right next to the border of dense woods at the westernmost edge of the camp. It was accessible only by a service road that came to a dead end at the campsite. It was arranged in a semicircle with a kitchen and meeting area in the middle. The tent the girls were staying in was the furthest removed from the counselor's tent, about 100 yards away. It was the closest to the restrooms and was about 75 feet from any other tent. Their tent was not visible from the counselor's tent. So it was kind of like in and we can put up pictures. There's there's a bunch of pictures, but it was like in a half circle. But because of the way that it was set up, if you are in the first tent where uh, the counselors were at, when you look across, you couldn't see their tent. That was, was the only tent. tent. Yeah. And you couldn't, trees. it was, um, I think, no, it, I, I don't think it was the trees. I think maybe like the bathroom or there the was something that was blocking it. Oh, okay. So one of the counselors in the Comanche unit said that night she was walking back from the restroom and saw a dim light shining in the woods nearby. This was after lights out. It was just around the tree line that surrounded the area and the counselors knew that no one should be in that area. She pointed her flashlight in the area and immediately the light she saw was turned off. It then was turned back on and started to move northwest in the direction of the Kiowa unit. She again tried to see what it was, and when she pointed her flashlight at it, the light turned off. The counselor waited there for a few minutes and didn't see anything, and she decided to return back to her unit. Around 10.30 p.m., a counselor went to do a tent check in the Kiowa unit. Tent number eight, or tent seven, was the last tent she checked on. The girls were all finishing their letters home by flashlight. She told them it was time for bed, and after a few minutes, she closed the flap on the tent and left. At some point during the night, another counselor heard a girl screaming in the woods and found that she was sleepwalking, and they put her back to bed in her tent. Another girl in the Quapai unit, which housed the youngest members, during the night was heard screaming. She told counselors that she was walking to the restroom and someone grabbed her by the raincoat. 
Other girls said that someone was walking around their tents. One girl said that she saw a man in the woods. The counselors attributed all of this to first night jitters or pranks and escorted the girls back to their tents. Gina. What? What? If they would have only taken them seriously. I know. I know the what ifs. I'm sorry. No, it's I'm crazy. Shock! Like, no. You're at a camp with kids. Who, whoever and did this? Grabbed- whoever did this? Whether yeah. I'm not convinced it was just one person. Yeah. Um, it could have been. Yeah. But I'm not convinced that it was just one person. But the fact that all of these things happened, this person was cruising around this camp for quite a while. Yeah. Hours. It sounds like it. In Hours. uh, Were these counselors talking to the, did they, did they know that this happened? Like, you know, cause it sounds like it happened in different parts of the campsite. So were they aware that this happened over here as opposed to that happening over there? I don't know. I would, I mean, I don't know if this, if these reports came after the fact, but nonetheless, if you hear someone screaming. Yeah. And I get it. Like, I mean, kids are going to play, kids are going to, you know, pull pranks. They're going to yeah. have, you know, I wouldn't think on the first night joke though. around, but I really I don't, don't I, I, yeah, I don't know because I feel like that's more of a boy thing to do. And I'm probably yeah. going to get slammed for saying that, but I feel like that's more of a boy thing, you know, where you want to like scare your friends. Like, I don't Definitely feel like not. little girls do that. Yeah. No, I think they were already scared to begin with. Yeah. And to come back with these stories where a man grabbed my raincoat. This happened. Like, seriously, you take that serious. And like, there's there's not supposed to be anybody else in these woods. Yeah. Like, literally nobody else is supposed to be there. So. Yeah, that's that's a call to the authorities. Yeah, I don't. I don't it, get it's, it. Okay, just to be on the same, even if you're overreacting. just to, Who cares? Yeah. Two of the counselors said about 1.30 a.m., some of the girls from tent five were slamming the door to the bathrooms and they went and took them back to their tent. After going back to the counselor's tent, they both heard something that is described as a low guttural moaning. That's two counselors. You're hearing the same thing. Yeah. What is it? Yeah. You know, they both got up and went outside walking towards tent five. One of them walked towards the road that led to the camp. She pointed her flashlight in the direction of the sound. She couldn't see anything in the woods and the moaning stopped. She said she assumed the noise was some kind of animal. They walked back to the tent area and checked out tent number five and then returned to their own tent. It was then that the strange moaning noise resumed. You check all the tents at that point. Where's that noise coming from? Yeah. Sometime after this, in the middle of the night, the flaps on the counselor's tent were taken off the hooks and removed. Two purses and a pair of glasses disappeared. Some of the girls that were awake at this time saw a light outside their tents. The girls in tent number seven watched as a light approached their tent and suddenly the tent panel was pulled open and a light shone inside the tent. A 10-year-old girl saw a dark, a large dark figure glare inside the tent. The figure then dropped the panel and moved away. At some point, the hook screws that held down the back of tent 8 were removed. This was the tent that the girls were in. Because it's, it's referring to yeah, it's the last one. Right, yeah. A girl in the Cherokee unit reported hearing screams around 3 a.m., Okay, we started this at 10.30. It's now 3 a.m. He's like Hours. making, they're like making their way around. 
One of the most disturbing reports was that a girl in the Quapaw unit heard screams and a girl yelling, Mama, Mama. Why didn't the counselors hear this? Uh, the counselors heard somebody and saw somebody out yeah. there. Like, I don't just call the cops because I know as a counselor and most of them are probably teenagers themselves, like just let's, or they were very adults. young. They yeah, were I was very say, young. They um, were like a lot of times 18, camp- 19 years old. Yeah. yeah, no, they were very young. So um, which would make I, me more scared because I feel like at 18 or 19, I'd be really scared. You'd be scared. I'd be really scared. So call authorities, something, call somebody who's higher than you. Like there's got to be somebody. Mm-hmm somewhere in the vicinity that's above you they sh- they didn't just leave all 140 kids with 18 year olds right mm-hmm. no there so, no there was the camp director there, yeah. and her husband was there and so i'm just curious like there was no yeah. proto- maybe you know it, we are talking 1977 yeah the protocols that would be in place now or were probably not there then. And it's unfortunate yeah. that things have to happen in order for things. I feel like we're always reactive, mm-hmm. not proactive. proactive yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just, I say that all the shame. time. Yeah. I say just, that at work a lot. Too. Yeah. <laughs> it's always reactive. <laughs> I know. Same here. I say so, that a lot. On June 13, just after six in the morning, Kiowa counselor, Carla Wilhite went to take a shower on her way down the trail. Something bright yellow caught her eye. She walked over closer to get a better look, and when she got within a few yards, she saw a sleeping bag on the ground. Then she saw a child laying partially on top of the sleeping bag. At first, she thought the girl was sleeping outside, but then quickly registered what she was seeing. Her first instinct, she said, was to run away. She ran to get Dee and Susan, the other two camp counselors in the Kiowa unit, and insisted that they go and count all the girls in this unit. She told him that she saw a girl's body on the sleeping bag and two more over by the trail. All three women ran to all the tents in the Kiowa unit to count the girls and found that tent eight was empty. They had accounted for 24 girls, but Denise, Michelle, and Lori were missing. Carla looked closer inside the tent number eight and saw blood on the tent and on the floor. Carla told the other two women to make sure the other girls didn't leave their tents while she ran to get help. Carla ran towards the nurse's office. Susan then decided that she was going to go investigate what Carla had seen. When she got to the area where the girls were, she started to scream. Dee ran over and put her hand over Susan's mouth and told her to quiet down and sent her back to make sure the other girls didn't hear anything. Dee went back over to two sleeping bags that were on the trail and felt a body inside of both bags. She she then ran for her car. By this time, Carla had reached the nurse's office. She woke up and told her there had been an accident and there was a body down by the Kiowa unit. The nurse rushed to put on her clothes and get to her car while Carla went next door to wake up the camp director, Barbara Day, and her husband, Richard. While the nurse was driving on the road, she came across Dee driving and she asked her what happened. Dee said, there are those little girls down there and I think they're all dead. The nurse drove over to the Kiowa unit where she saw Susan and she led her to where the bodies were at. What the woman saw was horrifying. Denise Milner was laying on the ground on her back. Her legs were spread wide apart and she was nude from the waist down. There were visible wounds on her body. The nurse checked for a pulse, but when she squeezed, blood came out of the girl's mouth. When trying to find her wrists, she realized that the girl's hands were bound and tied behind her back. Camp director Barbara Day and her husband then arrived at the scene. Barbara stayed in the car while her husband went to where the girl's bodies were. He took part of the sleeping bag that was underneath Denise and used it to cover her. Richard was a surgical technician at a local Tulsa hospital. 
He saw that there were two other sleeping bags and yelled for his wife to call the police. At this point, nobody has opened the other two sleeping bags to check the contents. Richard and Barbara then drove to where the park ranger lived. He lived on the grounds off Camp Scott with his wife and kids. While Richard was waking the ranger, Barbara called the highway patrol. Richard then went to open up the gate to let the police in and the park ranger went to where the bodies were. When he looked around, he saw red and white nine volt flashlight and a roll of duct tape near the bodies. While all of this was going on, the other counselors were instructed to take all the other girls to the breakfast area, making sure they stayed away from the Kiowa unit area. Then they went swimming, did some arts and crafts until the buses arrived. All of the girls were loaded onto charter buses and sent back to Tulsa. During this time, camp counselors were using name lists trying to figure out what the girls' names were. There are conflicting stories about what the girls' parents were told and about why they were all coming home. Most of them said that they were told there had been an accident at the camp. The parents were all waiting for the buses to arrive, not knowing if the girls would be coming home. The three girls' families were reached by phone and told that their daughters had been killed. Not much more information was given. Camp Scott was closed on June 14, 1977, and never opened again. To be told over the phone, did they go to their place or they called uh, them? No, they, they called them. And told them that their kids, and we don't know... I mean, How or why? You know, my first reaction would be, I would think it was another count. It was one of the camp counselors at yeah. first, you know, but um, yeah, I've seen, I've seen some um, interviews with the parents and stuff. And one of the, I think it was in the keeper of the ashes. They interviewed one of the girls um, parents and the dad, I think was a doctor and he actually, brought somebody home with him from the hospital to tell his wife, to help him tell his wife. And he told her, uh, she said that when she saw somebody else come in the door with him, she, she knew, she knew something was wrong because she knew the girls were coming home. Right. Because there had been an accident. So she knew they were picking up the kids. I don't think so. She didn't know anything at this time. I think she was just probably suspicious of why he was, he looked the way he did and he had somebody else with him. And she uh, or he asked her to please sit down and she said, I'm not going to sit down. Like, tell me right now what happened. So I don't know, call it a mother's intuition or yeah, whatever. But I just know that they were told um, that there was an accident and that was it. They, they were killed and that there was an accident. I don't think any other information was given. But for the other parents, could you imagine being the other parents who were just told that there was an accident, there were girls killed, and you're waiting by the bus, waiting not knowing your, if yeah. your kid's going to be on the bus? If you were the one, yeah. That's I mean, scary. Yeah. yeah. For everyone. Yeah. So one of the first responders was Sheriff Peter Weaver. He said he felt like the person or persons that did this chose this tent because it was 50 feet away from any other tent and was close to the dense brush. He also said that he touched Denise Milner's body and estimated her body temperature to be somewhere around 70 degrees. This led people to believe that she had only been dead for a short time because her body was still somewhat warm around 7 a.m. It wasn't until the other officers and a medical examiner arrived around 10 a.m. that the two sleeping bags were opened. And I just want to say that when they say like they chose this tent because it was at the end, to me, if they were wandering around from 10.30 p.m. to 3 p.m., 
I think it was more than that. Like they were searching for the perfect, like maybe because there was only three of them, you know, like you said, like if there was more than one, let's say there was two people, like how many kids can we handle at one time? The other tents all had four kids because some of the kids said that they were there, you know, Mm -hmm. and then they were trying the kid who got grabbed Mm -hmm. opportunity. I think it was more opportunity as opposed to location. Oh yeah. You know, but yeah, I mean that did help that it was so far away, but Mm -hmm. They were scoping out all the tents. Yeah, and, that's and I, crazy. And, you know, there again, there's so many theories about how this all went down. But one theory is that they were after one girl in particular. So and, it's somebody and it knew was her. it was um Denise Milner. Okay. That they believe that and so that would make more sense because if they're going from tent to tent looking inside it. And this is just but, somebody, you know, this is just, I've read so many different theories yeah. and I think Keeper of the Ashes goes into, you know, they do like a whole recreation of, of you know, how it happened and if it could have just been one person, how they could have done it. Because at first I'm like, this is not just one person. Yeah. I don't care if they're kids or not. Someone's going to get away. You go after one kid. I mean, I would think the other two would, I don't know, hit him over the head with something. Or or, run and scream. Yeah, like scream. I don't know. For help. I mean, but who knows? Again, this is one of those situations where it's like, you don't know until you're there what you would do. Who knows? They could have just been in shock and panicked and just sat there speechless. Yeah. You don't know. The counselor D and Richard Day had touched the two sleeping bags, assuming there were bodies in there, but they had not to this point opened them. When law enforcement opened the first sleeping bag, they found eight-year-old Lori Farmer, and she was wrapped in bloody bed sheets. The next sleeping bag was open, and they found Michelle Gousset. She was bloody and bound in the fetal position. She had a cord around one hand and looped tightly under her buttocks and then bound to the other hand. Some reports said that these two girls had ligatures around their necks. Bloodstained clothing was found in their sleeping bags. There are conflicting reports about what the girls were wearing. Some reports said that they were nude from the waist down, and other reports said that they had something on. Denise Milner was lying out in the open and was nude from the waist down. Her pajama top was pulled up under her arms and her arms taped down around her shoulders with black duct tape that ran across the pajama top. Her hands were bound behind her with thick two-inch duct tape. There was also some type of cord underneath the tape. She was severely beaten on her face with some type of blunt object. There were two ligatures around Denise's neck. One was a cord and the other was an elastic bandage. Attached to the cord was a cylindrical object approximately four inches long and made of terry cloth towel material. The surrounding area has many farmhouses that have been abandoned. They searched all of these areas. There are also cliffs and in these cliffs there are little caves. There were three caves in this area that they would find evidence. In one of the caves, someone had built four small fires, something they felt was ritualistic. They found a pair of sunglasses that a camp counselor said was taken from them. They also found duct tape that was the same as the tape that was used on the flashlight that was found near Denise's body. So that red and white flashlight that they found, um, it had like um, a piece of newspaper on it Uh and then it had a little hole cut and there was duct tape around it. So basically when you 
turned the flashlight on, it was very, very dull and the light only came out of that one little hole that was exposed. They did it on purpose so it doesn't it so it's so not bright. bright. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that was the um the duct tape that was found in one of the caves. So um then they found some wedding photographs. These pictures were then shown on the news to see if anyone would come forward. This was when the police zeroed in on Jean Leroy Hart. These pictures were photos that Hart helped develop when in jail in a work release program. The tape and the sunglasses that were found would actually put Hart at Camp Scott. Because we've talked about like a lot of cases where there's all this evidence, but it doesn't put them at the actual scene. Yeah. Where these actually do. They, they put, put him, they put him there at Camp Scott. So in 1973, four years prior to these murders, Hart was in Mays County Jail serving serving a sentence 145 to 305 years. Yeah. For so rape, how was he out? For okay. rape, kidnapping, and burglary when he escaped. Yeah. <clears throat> his mother brought him a file inside of a Bible and he sawed his way out. Wow. He was caught after 10 days and then brought back to uh, jail only to escape again a few weeks later. This time they were unable to find him. He stayed in the Locust Grove area and people reported seeing him all over town. They would say we saw him one minute and the next minute he was gone. While the town was terrified, the authorities continued on their manhunt. Ten days after the murders, they brought in over 600 people to search for Hart. They also brought in three tracking dogs from out of state. Once the dogs were brought in, strange things started happening. The dogs would start tracking a scent and then just suddenly lose it, which apparently is like very odd. Like once dogs Dogs smell something like they're on it. So they continued to struggle in their hunt for heart. Authorities referred to him as one of the most experienced woodmans they had ever come across. Um, He was also very equipped and he was used to living outside in the wilderness. Then theories started to surface that Hart was a shapeshifter. This I thought was very interesting. We kind of touched on that a little bit about shapeshifters when we talked about the Native Americans. Well, because basically it's 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 somebody who can make themselves into another animal or a different form like. You know, they were they felt like he was making himself into a bird, which and I feel like a skinwalker is like a shapeshifter, shape-shifter yeah. you know, so um, they felt like he was turning himself into a bird. Well, I mean, so they would, would pe- people would see him and then all of a sudden he's gone. gone. Yeah. So um, and then two of the three search dogs that were there that they were using died. I believe one was hit by a car and I believe the other one, I don't remember how the other one died, but they're, they're starting to blame him for all of these mysterious things that are happening. Yeah. So he was said to be using native American magic. That's what they believed. So Hart started to become an urban legend or a mythical figure. And I thought that was really interesting because you know he's real. How is it an urban legend? But then, you know, when you look 
when you look at all of these things, like when they talk about Native American magic and all of that, and there's a huge population of Native Americans in that area, you know, if if that's what you believe in, then that's definitely could be a possibility. Yeah. Was Hart Native American? Yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. So uh, I believe he's a Cherokee. Okay. So this was all happening because of what people knew about Native American lore. The authorities started to believe that because he was familiar with the area and the people there, they might be allowing him to take cover at their homes. On April 6th, 1978, they got a tip that he was living in a cabin that was owned by a Cherokee Indian by the name of Sam Pigeon. He worked for a local nursery and would go to work every day. They waited for Sam to leave for work and they rounded everyone up together and went to the cabin. As they moved in towards the front of the house, they saw a figure moving out towards the back of the house. When he saw the authorities, he turned around and ran back inside, but the police were already in the house. They took him outside where he was arrested. The authorities said it looked like he had been living at the cabin for at least a few months. When Hart went on trial, it was not only about murder, but about race and the treatment of Native Americans. The local people didn't think he did it, and that made finding a jury very hard. Hart was Native American, and so was the majority of the town. I just have a question. So do they believe that he was wrongly accused and convicted of the rape charges as well, where he was already serving time and escaped from jail? No, because I believe he pled guilty to those. So he's okay raping the woman that he raped this pr- was prior to this. This was like but, a big thing because yeah. he had so much support from the people in this town. Like people were rallying around him because they really, really did not think that he was guilty of this at all. Well, then they don't trust the police. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of um, distrust, especially among the Cherokee nation, mm-hmm. which you don't, can't blame them. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, mean, for sure. And considering everything in the 70s that was going on, yeah. you can't, you know what I mean? You got to take all that into perspective, too. Yeah. And just the history of it. I mean, I don't, you know, um, we kind of talked about, and I don't even know if we talked on this podcast, but I know I've talked about it with my family and stuff about um, how the Native Americans were treated by authorities, police, lawyers, oh, yeah. um, the government, everything, you know, um, and how the FBI was created and a whole other story. I can go into that um, because of the treatment of Native Americans. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's just. And that was all around this time. And, and it was so, all around that area, yes. too, north of that area. So it's like all this happening in just so you the history got, yeah, of And it. you have to take all that into yeah. perspective, too, when you're. As to why they automatically distrust what the police are absolutely, saying. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. So. so many high profile attorneys wanted Hart to hire them. However, he chose to be represented by Garvin Isaacs, a local Oklahoma attorney. Hart said, I don't want them. I want you. You come highly recommended. You only hire those people when you're guilty and I haven't killed anybody. I'm not guilty of anything. So during Hart's preliminary trial more than 100 people testified the judge ruled that probable cause was established and Hart was to stand trial for the murders of the three girls they summons more than 900 people for the trial could you imagine trying to find a jury not in that town that would be very, that's where very difficult that's where it was like how do you 
How do you go about trying to find? And they summon more than I, I'm really curious as to what was the size of the town at that time too. I guess I, that's what county, I was thinking. I was like, it might not 900 be, people. Yeah. That's the whole thing. It might not be just no. Locust it's the county. It's the county. So no, it's it's yeah. Mays County, but still, that's crazy. So. Sid Wise was the district attorney for Mays County at the time and was in charge of prosecuting Hart. However, it was found that Wise was sharing information from the case. Wise had signed a contract for a book deal about the girls' murders. So he was... He had a motive... Yes. ...to wrap it up. And then the, um, the name of this book, I believe, I could be wrong, but I think it's called... The girl's intent eight. It's not, I don't think you can get it anymore, but I believe that that's what it's called. The girl's intent eight. So, um, so he was put on the stand and he lied under oath about sharing information on this case with people other than law enforcement. Wise ultimately opted out of the case and the district attorney of Tulsa County took over his position on March 9th, 1979. The trial started the parents of the murdered girls attended almost every day. It was discovered that the glasses that were found in the cave that were to have said to have come from the campground were initially taken to the property room after the initial search of the campgrounds. So the question was, how did they get from the property room to the great, to the cave? So obviously we know where this is heading. They think that the police Plant, planted them. Planted it, yeah. <clears throat> so, because it was so convenient that all this stuff was found in a cave where he could have been hiding out, but technically he was hiding out in a cabin, wasn't hiding out in a cave. So, I there was also something written on that cave. I'll find what it says and I'll put the picture in right here. But there was something that was written in that cave too. Um, that pointed to heart. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um. So, but one thing that they po- that positively did tie heart to this case were the pictures that were found in the cave, those wedding pictures. So during the trial, they had a jailer come in and testify. He testified that those pictures were in Peter Weaver's. He was Peter Weaver was the the sheriff from Mays County. That they were in his desk when Hart broke out of jail. This jailer said that Peter Weaver hated Hart and had taken the pictures and thrown them on his desk and said, I'm going to get this son of a bitch if it's the last thing I do. So they're saying that so he, they're saying planted, that the he planted those pictures he too. he was there on the scene. Because so. he escaped from his jail. His jail. So, um, so Hart's attorney tried to prove that the evidence found at the cave was planted by Weaver. The media then set up a press conference in the middle of his trial and people were allowed to submit questions. This is bullshit. This guy in the middle of his trial was allowed to have a press conference and be questioned about things. Yeah, that's crazy. Normally they don't even want you to talk. It's like Uh, you're not allowed to speak at all. Yeah. About the case. Nothing. And now you're going to allow people to ask him questions like in the in the midst of this, like in the middle. Like and. They submitted the questions beforehand. So it wasn't like of course, any so of they these could, questions no, were surprised. They could pick and them. choose what they oh, wanted yeah. him to answer. They said they allowed this because they wanted to humanize him since so many people had such different thoughts and theories on him. I mean, the girl's parents were not in support of this at all, which I totally understand. Not. But I do kind of get what they're saying about him, you know, people having such different feelings about him or theories about him because if you're talking about him 
being an urban legend. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, did they just want him to like show his face to be like a shapeshifter? So they're like, like, he's he's, he's a human. He's a real person. But then how about, but let's not let people ask him questions. Yeah. That I I think that was just a step too far. So on March 31st, 1979, only five hours later, Gene Leroy Hart was found not guilty. He then went back to the Oklahoma State Penitentiary to serve out the rest of his 300 and something year sentence. So basically, at the end of the day, it didn't matter if he was found guilty or, or not, not, because he, he was, was going to be in prison for the rest of his his life anyway. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. <clears throat> but I think just for the families. You know, I think yeah. it was just it was a huge to be found not thing, guilty, like but, for them to have to deal with that. But I think if you look back on it, he was had a jury of his peers, which mm-hmm. were a lot of supporters. Yeah, of course. So. No, of course. So on June 4th, 1979, Hart was in the prison yard exercising. After he was done, as he was walking off the prison grounds, he collapsed and dies. Immediately, rumors started to circulate that Hart was poisoned. After speaking with his mother, they find out that Hart's only biological brother died of a heart attack at age 36. After performing an autopsy, it was confirmed that Hart did die of a heart attack. So he was, they said, I think in the autopsy, they he had like 90% blockage on one side and 80 something percent blockage on it ran like, in the family. Yeah, like it ran in the family and he, you know, um, so, so he died and this was immediately after the trial immediately almost. after the trial yeah, like, like what two couple months. moments later yeah like yeah so you know it so there's no closure so did they ever try to go after anyone were there any other suspects there were there were so many other suspects and but they just zero they were all just i mean all like there were so many things that were put out there where people would say oh you know i suspect this person i suspect that person but nothing ever came of any of the information that they had. Um, I think um, Gene Hart was a good suspect to look at and it, and it could be probable that he was the one who did it. I mean, to me, he's already committed rape, you know, well, but he never went after children before. And I'm going to look at that. And then also though, um, just did they really plant it or did they not? That's where I'm like going back and forth, you know, with the police. I just wish Things were all done on the up and up. And maybe if they were and people are saying that things were planted. But to me, if you dot all your I's and cross all your T's and everything's clean, you have witnesses to everything as far as finding the, you know, evidence, packing it up, um, documenting all that stuff. I just feel like it would clear up a lot of the suspicion. Yeah. Uh, So in 2022, they retested or they didn't retest, they tested DNA that was found and he was, I don't think they could say that, yes, it was him, but everybody else was eliminated. So it's strongly believed that he, he is was the, the person that did this. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he acted alone again or not, but, and I mean, at this point, what do you, you know, I don't know. I don't know if it would make things better to know if he was still alive or yeah. I think for the for the parents and the family 
just to know who did this and that there's not somebody else out there. Yeah. I think for me, that would be a big thing is like someone who, well, you know what? It probably pissed me off even more because to me, I'm like, okay, the man who did it, even though he's found not guilty, died. Okay, whatever. Nobody, he didn't really pay for it, but he's dead. Mm -hmm. But it would hurt me worse to know that somebody's out there and just li- continue mm-hmm. to live his life like mm-hmm. nothing happened. Like yep. go on whatever to have a family, grandkids, happy yeah. life, birthdays, celebrations, mm-hmm. you know. And you took the life of my child. Like, oh my gosh, that would anger me so much. Yeah. Um, there was also something that I wanted to to point out to that a few months prior to um to these murders the counselors had gone up to camp Scott to do like a training or whatever. And one of their uh, tents had been ransacked and their belongings had were gone through or whatever. And when they came back, there was a box of donuts there and the donuts had been taken out of the box by somebody. And a note was left inside of this box of where the donuts were at. And it said, we're on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. So, um, the counselors, we, the counselors at the time, well, here's the thing. The counselor at the time just kind of brushed it off as like a prank or whatever. And the note was ripped up and thrown away, discarded of and never seen again. She can't recall exactly word for word, like verbatim what this says. Um, they don't know if it said in tent one or in a tent or we or I or three girls or two girls or whatever. But yeah. her recollection is that it did say three girls. So I think there's there's so much to and this, this story. Hap- this note was left with donuts how many months beforehand? I like two months prior to. And had Hart already escaped two months prior. Mm-hmm. Okay, just checking. Like he, I was, he's, I'm all being detective now. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you know, so he was already he had escaped. He during escaped that time in as, 1973. So he was living yeah, for, for four, four years, years mm-hmm. before the murders took place. Yeah. Okay, I didn't catch that. I'm sorry. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Four years so, without them finding him. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it um, when you think of all of these things that that happened like this note that was left and it was just okay i just want to say like if people are saying we spotted him here but he disappeared we spotted him that he disappeared in locust grove do you think it was kind of like i don't know the attitude of the police to be like you know what we know he escaped. We're going to catch him eventually, but we're not going to actively go out there because when they actually actively went out to go look for him at the cabin, they, they got him. him. I think it took it's, something like this to happen again. Yeah. Like I'm like, you're being you reactive know, yeah. and not proactive. <laughs> you know, the guy's out there. You hear people citing him in the Locust Grove area. You would think like, okay, we're going to get this guy. Yeah. And I think just the fact that, you know, a lot of the people in the town were protecting him. I do believe that. Yeah. So I believe, yeah, he did have places to go. I don't believe he was in the same place for the whole entire time because I think he had people protecting him. Yeah. But I feel like there was, as in a lot of 
cases that we talk about, a lot of mistakes made. So they didn't actually believe that he was rightfully guilty of the first one then if they're hiding him out after he escaped the first, you know, the first probably because they brought him over there. They hit him out. But I believe he pled guilty to that one, to the, to those two. He, yeah, yeah, he, um, and what was, um, what was it? It was two women that he he kidnapped them in in rape, two women, right. And tied them up and left them for dead. And one of them was able to, the way that he had them bound was if they were to move that the ropes would tighten more. And one of them was able to escape and get out and untie the other one. I feel like there were a lot of things that happened that weren't acted upon. Yeah. You have this note that was left. Um, if somebody's leaving a note saying they're going to kill somebody. Precautions. How are you not taking that serious when you're talking about bringing over a hundred and something little kids, kids there? Well, and then my thing is too, is that, okay, are you, I don't know who, which camp counsel this was who found the note, but the first night when there's, you know, girls screaming, a man's grabbing a girl by the raincoat, that note would pop in my head. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'd be like, like wait there a were so many things that happened and that took place that people just disregarded as like, oh, this is a prank. Oh, this is this. This is that. Nobody took it seriously. You put yeah. all those things together. And if I were. If I recall correctly, it was the same counselors that were there. Yeah, I would say they were going through training before to they get ready for kids. this. So, so how do you not make that connection? Uh, yeah, I know it's crazy. But, but you know what? We can't blame them. They're young no, kids. I mean, They're 18. Again, yes. My kid doesn't remember what happened yesterday. I'm just going to put throw that out no, there. So it's like nobody is anybody to sit here yeah. and judge, judge what anybody what they did. Because, again, you don't know what Could've, you would do. Should have. There's you know, been so many times you could look, you know, what is all the same hindsight? Hindsight's 2020. 2020. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, there's so, so many yeah, times you definitely. look back on many things in your life. If I would have yeah. done that, you know, why didn't I think of that? Yeah. So, you know, maybe they just really did think that what it was that? Tuesday morning quarterback, you know, yeah. after the Monday exactly. night game, you know, like you exactly. can't, whatever, like, is that what it's called Tuesday? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I don't know, something it's, about that. Yeah. It's but the yeah. same thing, you know, after so. the fact you have all these brilliant ideas of what you should have done or could have done or what, what would have worked have better. Yeah. Of so, course. Yeah. Um, so. but I would love to hear people's take Thoughts. on this. And I know that there was a lot left out of this story. There was a lot, um, of the other suspects that I didn't touch on. I know that there was a lot of information and, you know, things that were left out because it could go it's on forever. Yeah. Yeah. No, it could go a lot on of forever. So, so, um, we just kind of covered it a but little bit. But yeah, if on you, it. you know, if you have any comments or anything or if you have, because there's, there's been a lot, which I really like reading, especially on the Natalia Grace episode that we did. We've had a lot of listeners um, comment and talk about, um, you know, their, what their theory is and what they think happened and, yeah. um, and with the Springfield three, the same one. Um, Maybe we should do a Patreon episode where we read some of those comments. Yeah. Yeah. Because so they're, they're really, they're really interesting to, it's interesting to hear other people's takes on, you know, and yeah. you don't think of those things sometimes, you know, so it's, it's really interesting to hear what people think. So um, yeah, leave us a comment and let us know your feelings on this and, you think did it or 
your feelings on heart or whatever, yeah, you know, because there absolutely. might be a lot of people out there that don't think he had anything to do with it. Yeah. So for sure. Yeah. So if Thank you, you so would much. like to follow us, yeah. we are at 50 Days of Madness on Instagram and TikTok. Please click the like, subscribe, yes. ring oh. the bell for notifications. That really helps us out a lot. Yeah, so if you like definitely. us, please, you know, subscribe. It doesn't cost anything to follow no, us. So. It's free. Thank you. Thank you to our Patreons. We yes. are, um, if you'd like to support us on Patreon, we are at patreon.com slash 50 states of madness. If you would like to purchase some of our merch, we are at 50 states of madness dot big cartel dot com. Um, Check and, it out. It's super cute. Yeah. And we'll have more product up shortly. Yeah, shortly. So yeah, we keep saying that, but it will. <clears throat> yeah. It took us forever just to get the t-shirts up. So, so. We're good. But we're, we're there. We're it. working on it. So, yeah. um, yeah. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. And we will see everybody next week. Yeah. Have a safe week. Bye.